0: Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series.
1: Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. And I'm Lindsay Shepard, a Fellow with the International Security Program. On this week's episode, we dive into commercial remote sensing. Thank you guys all for joining us. We are so excited for this episode. On commercial remote sensing. We have with us Carrie Bingen, the Chief Strategy Officer at Hawkeye 360, and Dr. Mariel Borowitz, an associate professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech, which Lindsay and I are both alma maters. So we're very excited to have <laughs> Carrie shaking her head, have the Georgia Tech squad <laughs> here represented. But I wanted to start off with a kind of a general introduction to commercial remote sensing. Obviously, there are so many different types of space missions and applications for satellites. And this is just one subset of that. So let's make sure that we're all on the same page. The audience is on the same page about what remote sensing is and how satellites perform that mission. And Mario, maybe you can kick us off.
2: Sure, I'm happy to. So I think the the simplest way to think of it is just that satellite remote sensing just means you have satellites up in space in orbit around the Earth that are looking at the Earth, right, and collecting information. But of course, it can get much more complex than that. So you can be in different types of orbits. So, you know, in low Earth orbit, you're a little closer to the Earth, you're moving faster. Um, you can, you know, depending on exactly where you are, see so all over the earth over a a period of an hour and a half or a few hours. Or you can have a geostationary satellite where because of the, the distance they're at, the particular orbit they're at, it seems like they remain stationary over one area. So satellites like that are really useful for watching hurricanes form in the oceans, for example, and are really important for our weather monitoring. So there's, you know, different locations of satellites, there's different types of information they collect. Sometimes they're just, you know, Essentially taking pictures like we would normally uh, think of with the camera, but they can also collect data in other parts of the spectrum. So things that we can't see with the naked eye, you can build a sensor to collect that. And you can have uh, radars in space. So you're actually sending a signal to the Earth and it's bouncing back and, and collecting it so you can see things through clouds or at night. Um, So lots of different possibilities of what we can do with satellites, and they're used for tons of different applications for science, for climate change, uh, for agriculture. Uh, I'm working on a project right now that's looking at how satellite data was helped in the polio vaccination campaign in in Nigeria. So all sorts of different ways to, to use this sort of satellite data.
0: So that's a really helpful segue. So Carrie, I want to bring you into the conversation from your prior government experience, but now you're out in the private sector working this issue set. So help us understand we're at a bit of a transition point, if I understand this correctly. So we're going from government actors being the primary folks in remote sensing to a robust commercial sector. So how is this capability transitioning out of government into commercial?
3: Well, first, I think I need to start off with an MIT cheer, given all this Georgia Tech uh, alumna surrounding me. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I'm i just really glad to be here. And I think, you know, it's a really exciting time to be in space and commercial space in particular. I look back at where we've been, and it's been very much a government-owned, government-operated model, it's been a high barrier to entry. Um, and so, you know, we build these big, exquisite systems. There are a few of them, and then it takes us a while to, to get them up on orbit, and then they, they last a long time. But really, with the proliferation of technology, the miniaturization of components, the decreasing launch costs, you're seeing space open up to so many more entities—be they commercial, civil, you know, obviously foreign, foreign government, and multinational entities—and it's a different business model. So for a commercial uh, entity, rather than build a satellite that the government funds and then you hand it over to them for control, we're now seeing companies build satellites with private investment dollars, do their own operations, and then provide that data or service to users for commercial applications, civil, environmental, government, and then international as well. And then there's a great benefit to the government from a cost perspective, um, they don't have to put all that money into the R and D infrastructure and ops that these satellite companies can do. Um, the risk is borne by commercial, but then the government has the advantage of buying that data or that service or that analytic product. Um, so it's a different model that we're seeing, but really driven by advances in uh, in the technology.
1: And I know that model, you know, where the Defense Department is having challenges trying to adapt to it and buy commercial more remote sensing data versus. Buying the satellite itself, which is what it, you know we do for aircraft, for example. Where are we on that kind of transition, and and what are the challenges that we're facing as where more remote sensing becomes commercial versus is wholly held by the government?
3: Yeah, and we I think we we have uh, we have some good companies to thank for the work that they've done over the last fifteen to twenty years in the imagery domain. You know now now Maxar has been out there leading. But what's fascinating is, again, with that technology drive is we've been able to make satellites smaller. And with that proliferation of technology, so many more entrants are coming into being, not just in the traditional electro-optical domain, but you're seeing a lot of commercial entities introduce capabilities in the radar, synthetic aperture radar domain in the hyperspectral imagery domain, in the domain of of Hawkeye 360, which is where I now work, in the radio frequency RF domain. And what's been fascinating is a lot of these capabilities up till now have been developed in government channels with government resources. Uh, and now you're seeing them done in the commercial world. So there's just so much opportunity to take advantage of um, these capabilities, the affordability of them. But also just the tech. I think what's really interesting is the technology refresh here is, you know, I come from a community in the government where we'd measure, you know, getting a satellite on orbit in years, years. And now we're seeing companies be able to pick capability up within months. There's, uh, you know, one entity out there, um, that's pumping satellites off the production line in you know, multiple in days. And it's just mind blowing how far we've come and the government. Really, it's an opportunity to take advantage of all of these capabilities. And we're seeing them, we're seeing, I think, the right indicators. We're seeing them want to take on more pilots, test and evaluate these capabilities. I think the next step has to be, how do we figure out how to integrate these capabilities into the architectures, into the ground infrastructure and processing, into workflows that analysts and others use day to day? And we're not quite there yet. Yeah,
0: Carrie, that's, I mean, a really interesting throwback to a conversation that I know you and I have had before is just, even if you look at the scale at which the manufacturing is happening, you know, companies producing, um, you know, tens or hundreds of satellites on the order of months to, you know, the previous time were to be maybe a handful a year. So even just that little component of this new kind of uh, supply chain is just getting the production capacity of the satellites is so much faster than it used to be. Mariel?
2: Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, I think it's such an interesting interaction that's happening between government and commercial. And, you know, someone mentioned earlier going from government to commercial. And I think it's actually more government and commercial. You know, we're adding a lot of new capability. I think the government is still going to play a huge role in in, in remote sensing and satellite remote sensing, but I do think, as Carrie said, there's all these new types of data being collected, new ways of of going about it with these commercial companies, and I do think the government is just starting to really think carefully about how they can benefit from that. Right. So a lot of times with these companies, the focus wasn't necessarily on the government customer; it wasn't something where you know the government told them to go out and build this particular thing. But just in the last few years, both NASA and NOAA, for example, have done programs where they're Actively buying that commercial data and evaluating it. So, in the case of NOAA, saying, can radio occultation data be used, you know, from these commercial entities be used to improve our weather forecasts? And their initial answers have been, you know, yes, to the extent that they're trying to incorporate it, you know, essentially as quickly as they can. And similar to NASA, just the last couple of years ago, NASA purchased a bunch of, of commercial satellite data and gave it to their researchers and scientists and said, hey, what can you do with this? You know, is this useful for you? And I think that is kind of the first step. Up and starting to realize where those those synergies exist and and actually have that cooperation
3: you know and that's interesting too is is with these new commercial capabilities that heretofore have been done in and- classified channels, or by the government, we're opening up these new data layers to so many different applications that maybe hadn't been envisioned before. And so exactly as Mariel said, you've got these environmental opportunities, commercial opportunities. I was just thinking um, the other day, like at Hawkeye, we have such a large footprint. As we pass overhead, we can capture signals across a footprint the size of Australia. And so every time we're going over the Arctic, we're seeing things. You're now seeing the results of, or the implications of human activity when the ice caps melt during the summer. So there's just so much more that we can do that we wouldn't necessarily have done before and provide all this data to a lot of folks that haven't had access to it before. And that's that's pretty cool.
1: And what does this mean for our national security? I mean, we've been talking a lot about the civil implications of this, but I imagine that adding more information either just verifies what, you know, the intelligence community might be picking up already or maybe just adds more information for us to start sifting through as we look at that mission.
2: Yeah. I think having, you know, certainly just more is better to some extent with, with this data, right? So you're just have more different pieces of information, you know, collected at different times, and that's just going to give you more data to work with and more Uh, more information and better answers, right? But I think it's also different types of data um, that are really important. So one of the first things that the commercial remote sensing industry, especially this kind of new wave of companies, did differently was really looking at temporal resolution, meaning instead of just looking at you know, how precisely can we see things on the earth? They're trying to improve how often can we see things on the earth, right? And that's a dimension that the military and the national security apparatus previously wasn't as focused on with their assets. And so now they have access to this new type of data where frequency of data collection is really emphasized. Um, And I think those kinds of changes are some of the really interesting ones and some of the ones that open up new opportunities. Yeah.
3: And what's interesting is with all of these smaller satellites, proliferated commercial remote sensing architectures out there is we will be getting to a point where data from space is truly commoditized. And it's almost less about that data, but it's more about now, what can you do with it? And I think the real advancements ahead are gonna be in the analytic world. So it's the processing, integrating, fusing these different data sources, How do you apply the, you know, the models, the machine learning algorithms to then make sense of all of this information and provide real insight and understanding into human behavior or temporal changes across the globe? But a lot of that, I think I'll come back as I think Caitlin, you were talking about earlier is to really be able to do that, particularly in the government, is it's going to take some cultural changes to really adopt these technologies, integrate them into their architectures and their systems integrated into workflows. Um, and I think that's still you know, ongoing work to do.
2: Yeah, I can just add to that. I mean, I think you're you're completely right that it's it's a whole ecosystem that has to grow together, right? So we have these, you know, great types of data, new types of data, but until we get a larger group of people who know how to work with them, the types of algorithms that we need to use the platforms that are going to support this data you know you really need to grow that community and and you can see this historically too like if you look at things like landsat as that landsat data started to get more broadly available the use of that data went up really significantly and part of that is you know more people just having access sure but then this whole ecosystem of people building you know the software that goes along with it and the analytics that allow it to be you know useful even if you're not someone who can you know, really be down in the weeds of working with remote sensing data, right? And I think now we're starting to see this happen with other types of data as well.
1: This is reminding me of we had the, a conversation on um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And part of that was just getting the workforce used to the technology, trained for to use the technology and to use it in such a way that they're thinking about it as part of their jobs normally, and not as a separate kind of far off magic button almost.
2: Yeah, I think the remote sensing community in general, satellite remote sensing is in that process. I mean, certainly NASA, NOAA, USGS, who, who runs Landsat, they're all trying to transition to providing data through the cloud, for example. But just as you mentioned, you know, part of the challenge with that is getting the users to, to come along on that transition, right?
3: So it opens a lot of possibilities, but, but it's definitely a process. And then... The other piece of the technology part out there is you we've got we've got the data, the sensor data, we have that advanced analytics engine, the AIML, but then there's also the other piece of this is which is the distribution architecture. So cl- exactly as Mary said, the, the cloud, these global network networks that can get this information, you know, rather than centralized as we've done in the past, is disseminated out to such a broader user base across the globe in pretty rapid amount of time.
0: Yeah. So it it strikes me that I guess we have two different directions we could take this conversation. So I'd like to focus on the government users and the Department of Defense perspective first, but then would love to hear kind of, is there anything different for the commercial side? So it strikes me that like the big disruptive potential will be achieved once we can figure out how to integrate commercial remote sensing and that full kind of suite of, you know, going from gathering, processing, analysis and dissemination into the existing structures, what are kind of those like near term barriers that a user like the Department of Defense needs to be focusing on to realize that disruptive potential? So what are the big hurdles like right in their face on integration?
3: It's a great question. um, And I probably won't be able to do it justice. But, you know, as I think where I sit now is we're seeing initiative uh, in terms of I'll say talent scouting bringing companies bringing ideas in to evaluate it to you know take it for a test drive to see, to see how it does but then we're still at this challenging point where I've taken it for a test drive now I want to really you know to, pedal to the metal and I want to I want to ingest it or I want to scale it to, to scale and we're still at that part where where the government's figuring out how do we get from test and evaluation we like this to now let's go ahead and integrate it into our architectures. Some of this is policy. Some of it is, you know, as you integrate into these larger systems, just the technical specs and the, the interoperability pieces, you know, have to be worked.
2: Right. So on the one hand, you know, they've been using satellite data for 60 years, right? So having that as a part of the process in general and and you know not only the government data but even commercial data has been a part of what the government has been doing for for decades now uh, on the national security side so i think you know the challenges now are a couple things you know it goes to this issue we brought up a couple times of new types of data and what does that mean and how do you how do you really use this well for the questions you're asking or does it allow you to ask even you know different questions than you were asking before so that Exploration kind of discovery phase, I think is really challenging. And it's, it's not just the national security groups going through that, but just kind of the general community really understanding what's the value of this data. So I think there's that happening. And then, you know, I think you just still have the normal bureaucracy challenges, like administrative and logistical challenges. And I know, for example, when the government buys commercial remote sensing data, typically they do it under a license that allows them to make it available to other government customers. And so, you know, I had this experience working with some people at NASA, and they were going to get access to data that had been already purchased by one of the national security agencies. Um, And even though technically that's possible, the process of actually getting that data took years. And so even these, you know, these structures that we already have set up, sometimes just the the bureaucracy and the logistics of it, I think are are a challenge. So not unique to space, but a problem all over the place.
0: Yeah, I hear like, I think two themes in there. One is that You know, we're familiar with earth observation data. We're familiar with processing it, but it's different now because it's coming from somewhere else. It's coming from this entirely other new sector and that may be presenting challenges. And then I really like the idea of going through this thought experiment of not only thinking about how can I improve upon what I've been doing already, but perhaps more importantly, I need to be thinking about what can I do now that I couldn't do before? And so how can we get... In the case of the podcast, we're focusing you know, on the national security users, but it sounds like users in general need to be thinking creatively about what capabilities um, and what potential do I now have access to? And even then, it's just a little bit of a, you know, maybe it's a brainstorming exercise.
3: No, and I love that. I I think the commercial folks we still have to provide mission value. If we can't provide mission value and mission benefit, you know, then it's it's obviously harder. But I think we are, and it's building that confidence, building that trust. But then, you know, it's, it's looking at for the, on the government side, it's it's looking at your current requirements and how they ask for this information. Is a lot of times you see them frame their needs or requirements in terms of you know performance the. The resolution or, or whatnot. And commercial is able to offer different types of capabilities that may not always fit in those requirements, but they still add mission value. So shareability, speed of getting data. So there are other attributes and then other barriers to consider, you know, the resources piece of this, but then just speed, speed of getting these capabilities on contract. We talked requirements, speed of getting those requirements defined, Um, Those are other elements that are institutional that I think we'll have to improve over time. Carrie, you mentioned trust,
2: and I I think that's a really good point, too, because I think especially in these early phases of the projects, that's been a big part of it. You know, I think that's true on the national security side and, and in general. But the NOAA and the weather data is a really good example of that, right? Our weather data and our weather forecasts are really important, and it's really important that they're accurate. And so I think there was a process of can we really trust commercial data, and is that something we're willing to put into our operational system and you know put out to people all over the country or all over the world that really depend on it? And you know there is a lot of trust that's needed there, and so I think building that up as well
3: has has been a part of the process, and an important part. And it's, it's a different model. And, you know, the intelligence community, they're so used to having to, to build evidence over time and then come to a conclusion where, you know, I have a high confidence that this thing is is it has happened or maybe it's about to happen. With all of the open source information and these kind of commercial remote sensing capabilities out there is, you know, back to that speed is, is it good enough to say, you know, hey, I can get this fast, but it may be, you know, I may have 80% confidence decision maker that has to make a timely decision, are they? is that information going to be useful and relevant to them? So is relevancy now based on time than maybe necessarily having that 100% uh, solution?
0: Well, and Muriel, so I can't let a Georgia Tech professor of international affairs off the hook without asking you the academic question of... What does this mean from a um, strategic or security standpoint, not just that the United States has this capability and U.S.-based companies have this capability, but, you know, as we've talked about, I think, throughout, throughout the, the episode of, you know, this is now available to a wide range of actors. Is this introducing, you know, new dynamics into kind of balance of power or how nations relate to each other? Like, what does it mean that this capability is proliferating?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of this we encountered first in kind of the 1980s when we started to get the first wave of commercial satellite remote sensing. Um, And it really did. And it does open up this type of information to a much broader set of users. Right. And so countries all around the world can can now get access to this. There are some caveats to that. So, you know, one, some of the countries that the US, for example, might might be very interested in what kind of data they have. China, Russia, they have their own very advanced space programs already. And so for them, the commercial changes are maybe not as significant in terms of the the national security effects. But I think you still do have things with other countries that wouldn't necessarily have those large programs. And you see it in things like during the Gulf War, for example, is one of the first cases where commercial remote sensing data was out there. And there was a question about who is going to get access to it and who is going to be able to use it. One benefit for the U.S. and one argument, national security argument for the U.S. being a leader in commercial remote sensing is that the U.S. then had control over a lot of the the data that was out there to supposedly be purchased, right? And so the U.S. actually, even though it was a commercial entity, did still have control over that. They had a law in place that they could require the commercial entities to actually you know, essentially turn off their systems and not collect data. Instead, in that particular case, they chose to just purchase all the data on an exclusive license. So there are things like that still today that the U.S. and other countries can do. That said, to the extent that commercial remote sensing is growing in other nations as well, the U.S. kind of loses some of that control. And so you do see some commercial remote sensing, especially in China recently, starting to increase. But um, I think it's still a lot of their focus is domestic, in terms of their customers, so it'll be interesting to see if that winds out and who they're really selling to.
3: It's a great point, Lindsay, and and just a great topic overall. Is the government has traditionally kind of taken a, a stance of of no, especially when we when it relates to exports, is kind of a position of denial. What I think you know, we're starting to see, what we're seeing is now there, there's this greater recognition of the strategic imperative and how commercial remote sensing fits into that. There's a recognition that our advanced technology is a competitive advantage, and that commercial space is part of a broader ecosystem that's focused on maintaining U.S. leadership in space. You know, maintaining a strong commercial space innovation base contributes to maintaining U.S. leadership in space. Leveraging this fantastic STEM talent that we're cultivating uh, in the United States, you know, needs to have outlets such as as commercial space to work on. So all of those pieces also relate, also tie into wanting to ensure we have a strong commercial space, commercial space innovation base, that then also helps us uh, maintain advantage. And there are competitors out there, you know, China and others that are absolutely on our heels. And so when we think about working with our allies and partners, when we think about creating greater access to our capabilities, that has to be a more prominent part of the discussion. I mean, no longer with this proliferation of technology, do we have years to say, you know, we're ahead and we're going to stay ahead? Those other competitors are clearly on our heels. And so if we're not able to engage with allies and partners that want, want these capabilities and want to leverage them, then there's going to be China or others that will backfill us. And then that ultimately not only hurts our, our innovation base, it hurts our national interests.
1: Well, and I think from, from our perspective, when, when I look at this stuff, we also think about the nature of the security of the systems themselves you know, the government, when it buys as a product, puts a lot of requirements in for cybersecurity or shielding or whatever, and, and making sure that, you know, if we start relying on commercial remote sensing to really supplement or be more prominent in the data that the government uses for intelligence and collection, making sure these systems across the board are secure, I'm sure is, is a big question as well, when we look at the counter space activities that that China, Russia and others are pursuing, because I'm sure this information would be really great for them to have as well, you know, to know what we can do and what we can see. But it really does sound like commercial remote sensing is an asset for U.S. national security in multiple ways. It's just crossing that bridge and getting it really worked into the government in the right way and in a way that's built for the future of what Commercial remote consensing will be able to do, and will be able to contribute. Is I think the key here.
2: I thought it's a really good point about about cybersecurity and kind of how as you become a part of kind of the national security operations. You know, what are the precautions that you need to take? One flip side of that that I think is interesting, though, is as you do incorporate these commercial entities, you know there 's some risk that you take on, but then there are also these these benefits so one of the things that the government has talked about as a way to protect against attacks against satellites, for example, right or the potential that someone would take out one of our reconnaissance satellites is to have um, resilience through redundancy right or by having access to lots of di- lots of different systems and so that 's another thing that is kind of an interesting possibility with commercial, even if it 's not a you know, completely different type of data or a completely, you know, really different product, actually having some redundancy can be valuable. If you're able to quickly ingest that into your systems, that means you're not as reliant on this one, you know, sort of inherently vulnerable space system. So it's, you know, it's definitely, you know, pros and cons on, on both sides there.
3: Yeah. And having just recently left a position where I had security in my job title, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with you, Caitlin. I mean, we, we, we would be foolish to not Recognize that that this this commercial space remote sensing arena, it is advanced technology, and it is going to be targeted, if not already, by by our adversaries and others. Um, so it is important that we take prudent measures to pr- protect our cyber capabilities, the links, the the intellectual property, and that that goes to ensuring that the commercial sector, the government are working together on information sharing. What I don't want to see happen, though, is there to be such a bevy of requirements that just crushes commercial innovation. I mean, part of what makes commercial exciting right now is they're able to provide some lower cost solutions, um, and they're able to move fast and innovate rapidly. And you still want them to be able to do that but obviously, they need to mitigate risk and do it smartly and protect in the right areas. I know it's a balance to strike, and I would just be you know, careful that we have to do that You know, public and private sector together, formed by the threat, but then making smart risk mitigation decisions.
2: Well, and they don't need to be as secure as our reconnaissance systems, right? These are not yeah. classified systems, and that's one of the benefits of them, right? You know, one of the things... Historically, with the commercial remote sensing that the national security um, entities found useful, is that when it comes time to share intelligence or share information with allies, it's much easier to share the commercial remote sensing data than it is to share data from a classified system, for example, right? And so, actually, the fact that you are, you do have these systems that aren't as secure or as uh, secretive can be a benefit.
1: So to wrap it up, I want to kind of just ask you guys if there's anything else we should highlight, anything you're really looking at for the future. In my mind, I've got like one of those sci-fi movie tables and all of the remote sensing data just like layered, you know, and then you can kind of just grab it and move it, whether that's RF signal tracking or AIS data or the images themselves. (laughs) I'm not sure that's where we're at, but that's where we're at in my head um, and what we're going for (laughs)
2: I'll say I'm excited for the new technologies. But I think the thing I'm looking for even more is the availability of that data. Um, I think, you know, some of my research in the past has really focused on data sharing policies, or, you know, the the extent to which data is made openly available. And, and I think that's always a question, especially with commercial data, right? How will these partnerships with government, for example, be written up and and how are they going to open up that data or to what extent are they going to make it available? Uh, And I think, you know, history shows us the more people we can get access to this data, then the more it'll be used, right? And the more creative solutions will come up, the more applications. Um, And so that's the piece I'm really interested in and looking for is, you know, how are we going to increase availability and how are we going to get that data out there?
3: What I love is where we're at today is not where we're going to end up. And I think to, to Mario's point about just getting the data out there, letting people use it and figure out its benefits. It's, you know, we're, we're putting new commercial capabilities out there back to where I started in this conversation is that are really novel. They're, they've not been done commercially before or they've not been done commercially before at scale. So there's just, it's just such an awesome time to be in space. And when I think of all of those different benefits, it's, The use cases that span not only defense and intelligence applications, but civil, uh, law enforcement, environmental, commercial. There's just tremendous applications and ones we haven't even thought of yet. There's the shareability, as Mario said, with our allies and partners. So much of this is being, it's, it's unclassified. And the technology, frankly, is unclassified and accessible as well. Um, and so there's just a great opportunity for leveraging it to be a greater pathway uh, for cooperation with our allies and partners. It adds the res- the resiliency and the diversity to our architecture. So just tremendous benefits. But also, if I can't emphasize enough, it is such an important part of our broader space ecosystem and our ability to maintain leadership in space. And it is a strategic competitive advantage for us. But I think we also need to make sure that our our national leadership is also echoing those same points as well, putting the policies in place to allow us to maintain that strategic, strategic advantage encouraging greater experimentation, you know, integration into our architectures, ensuring you know, that the resources are there as well.
1: well. that's an exciting and optimistic note to end on. So I just want to thank you both so much.
0: Well, that was awesome. It is always so wonderful to have Muriel and Carrie for a conversation. But Caitlin, this is your area of study. This was, this was your baby. What did you think? <laughs>
1: It is. I really enjoy looking at new revolutions in commercial space technology, and I was so excited for this episode, and it did not disappoint. However, I will say that I did think we sounded a little hype manny about commercial remote sensing. It was super positive, which is great. I'm all in. But I do want to say there are some sobering realities that I think we should talk about that we're lightly touched on, but maybe, you know, Lindsay, we can dive a bit deeper, like the security aspect. So if we're talking about commercial remote sensing as a resilient layer or redundant layer to government systems, you have to start thinking about how those systems are protected because military satellites and our national security satellites are designed with incredible protection, encryption, uh, they're shielded against radiation. There's just so many different ways that for national security capabilities, we think about protecting them that are not often translated into the private sector. And the private sector needs to understand that if the government starts buying their data as a service and relies on it, I would think that that would, you know, if, if an adversary, if we're in conflict, that they could be a target because they are such an asset to the government.
0: Yeah, that's something that really strikes me as reminiscent of, if you're familiar in the nuclear world, James Acton has been writing on this concept of nuclear entanglement and all of the risks that come from the entangling of nuclear capabilities and non-nuclear capabilities because there's clear norms around what is a what's fair game in conflict. And this seems like a really interesting almost kind of extension of that principle into what happens as we entangle and as we merge together commercial functionalities, systems, and companies with defense and national security systems and functionalities. So what if we have a dependence on a commercial system for overhead imagery or for, you know, remote sensing and data does that commercial company become fair game, or could they be considered fair game in a conflict? And how do they think through that?
1: Right. Well, and one way that you know you might be able to get around this without putting too many hard, you know, requirements on these commercial companies for providing government data is to think about other ways to create resiliency in that system alone. So Carrie touched on how quickly. Commercial remote sensing companies are able to build and deploy new satellites. Now, this is something that the government is just not good at. That takes years to maybe even a decade to launch satellites like this. But in the case of an attack on a commercial system, if some of their satellites go down and they lose that pocket of capability, you know, perhaps they're fast enough that they could relaunch and get that satellite back into operation quickly enough to make it effective. Now, that's not going to keep the resiliency against all types of attacks, but it would help against some.
0: Yeah, I think the the conversations on the scale and just the speed at which this has changed is, it's just mind boggling. Like when you think about manufacturing and how quickly satellites are manufactured and put into orbit versus, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago. When you think about the quality of imagery that the everyday person has access to is just orders of magnitude better than the national assets that we had in the 90s. And those were, I mean, it was basically a bus was the size of the satellite. And we have these little tiny little baby cubes that are sending back just incredible imagery. You know, we have Georgia Tech students are making satellites and launching satellites for their senior design project. Like, it's just really insane how accessible and how quickly this field has has really just exploded and how we're just now starting to think through what, what does this unlock? Like, what capabilities do we now have? What can we now do? What use cases can we explore while also thinking through, you know, the sobering realities of, of security. And you know having commercial companies now be you know you don't want to write requirements and force them out of business with so many security requirements, but they do need to recognize that perhaps they're going to be targeted by nation state actors now. And maybe there are more security requirements that they need to consider uh, and take into consideration. And so it's just a really like quickly changing space. It's just really, really fascinating.
1: Well, and it reminded me of our conversation two weeks ago on quantum when we were talking about where to, where it's best for DOD to do that early R&D in, in commercial investment. And for quantum, right, there were some areas that made sense for commercial capability and you should just let the private sector do it. But there were some that really only had DOD use cases. So those are the ones that, you know, Bob and Sarah recommended we, you know, focus on for DoD investment. This is commercial remote sensing. That's the name of the, you know, the game right now. And while we have incredible remote sensing capabilities in the government, we have let, and the commercial companies have built their own business case and spent their own investment and and private money in developing this technology, which as, as Carrie and Mariel both said, is we're not just talking about images and, pictures of the earth. We're talking about all sorts of different types of applications and types of sensing to include, you know, radio frequency and different types of signals coming out, um, infrared. I mean, it's just, it's incredible the different types of data we can get and that DOD didn't really have to put in too much money to get there, but now they can use the benefits.
0: Yeah. I'm reminded of, of a use case where, um, some of the, the North Korea watching community used openly open source synthetic aperture radar to detect evidence of a nuclear test in North Korea because they could like measure and assess where the mountain had had moved and had like grown and then had shrank. And that was all publicly available. And they were able to, to write a report and say, you know, here's our evidence. Here is this commer- commercially available product. Uh, And it's allowed us to really, you know, conduct this analysis. And I think, you know, in the national security field, you know, the North Korea example may be, you know, the the greatest example that we can look to in in the past few years where we've really been able to to learn so much more about a very closed, closed country and closed regime by having access to commercial product.
1: Well, and it's helping make the world more transparent so you can track ships, you know, as they communicate and as they put off, you know, their AIS transponders. And then sometimes those ships go dark and that means they turn off their transponder. And if you're not in the area, you have no idea where they could have moved. And then they'll turn it back on, you know, months later, weeks later, and be somewhere totally different unexpectedly. And this is great for hiding smuggling operations, for example, or illegal imports or exports. And because of commercial remote sensing data, we can now track that. And you can now use that to kind of call out these nations and, and really have that transparency and understanding of what people are doing.
0: Yeah. One article that I, I shared with my students at uh, George Washington University this semester uh, was a nice nexus of AI and commercial remote sensing um, because they researchers had used data from NASA to count the trees in the Sahara Desert. And that combination of this like overhead imagery data set plus machine learning revealed that there are over 1.8 billion trees in the Sahara Desert. Like this is just a really cool thing that we can do at the intersection of, of all of these technologies that we're talking about.
1: Well, I think that's something that I took away from this as well, is that it's not just helpful for gathering intelligence, for watching out for North Korea or illegal shipping and points. It's not just good for national security. This technology has the capability to help in so many different areas and really bring more information and you know, more awareness to, to different things. So trees in the Saharan Desert, uh, you can watch Human Migration, Across continents, you can watch the different nutrients and soil levels you can track for space from these commercial remote sensing companies that can now provide this to farmers so they know you know, when is the best season to plant or what their plot of land, how it's doing. And it just is creating new markets and it's creating new opportunities outside of the national security realm, which I think is, is really cool.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Mariel talked about that. You know, introducing that n- ability to to measure temporal change. I can now see change over time for a specific place or a specific thing that I'm looking at. But I do think, you know, I think any conversation on commercial remote sensing should come with you know a caveat or or Earth observation in general. And I, I really struggle with how to to balance this because it comes up a lot in artificial intelligence conversations on strategic stability is that balance of the world is a really big place. It's it's a big globe out there. And even if we're talking about the, you know, in in the national security realm, we talk about, you know, are you tracking mobile missile launchers in another country? Are you tracking nuclear submarines where the name of the game is to stay hidden and to ensure the, the resilience of your nuclear assets? And so the advent of this growth of Earth observation capability is often used in policy conversations of the seas are going to be transparent, and we're going to be able to track all the missile launchers all the time, or we're going to be able to track enough that we can change an adversary's calculus, or if an adversary has that capability, it changes the United States' calculus. And I think it's an interesting question to grapple with, but it does come with that caveat of You know, the world's a big place. You have relatively limited assets to task to observing a specific system at a specific place. Uh, And I think it'll be really interesting to see over the coming years as national security actors, as the DOD and the IC uh, start to think through how do they leverage this robust commercial capability while also kind of, you know, remaining clear eyed about what they still can't do.
1: Well, and it's not just the United States that has a growing capability for remote sensing and Earth observation. It's also Russia, China, Iran, all these other countries see the benefits as well and are investing in it. So even if we have a leg up right this minute does not mean we might we have that same leg up. And so even if we're excited about the transparency it brings, it also means that that same transparency will be applied to us. And that definitely changes the security calculus.
0: As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems,
1: Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Make sure to visit our show page at csis.org slash techunman for our show notes, more about our guests and anything else. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techamandpod. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in two weeks.